Hey y'all, and welcome to the Feasting on Truth podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Erin Warren, and we are on week three of our study, By His Grace, For His Glory, an inductive study on the book of Romans. We meet live on Tuesday nights on Zoom at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, and you are welcome to join us. We have a time of teaching, and then we break into small groups for discussion around the word. It's one of my very favorite things. You can find more information at feastingontruth.com slash Bible study. Y'all, the beginning of Romans is tough, but as you're going to hear through the teaching this week, we need to keep context at the forefront of our minds as we read this passage. Because before we can see Jesus as Savior, we need to know why we need a Savior in the first place. And sometimes that is hard. So here is Romans 2. Father, I'm not enough unless you come. Lord, um, I come before you um, with open hands and humble, Lord, the truths of Romans are rich and they are deep. And Lord, I know that I cannot do them enough justice. So I just pray, Lord, that you would um, come into this space, come into this time, Lord. I just pray that um, your word would go out, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand um, what it is that you have for us in the pages of Romans chapter two today. And it's your name I pray. Amen. Welcome to week three of By His Grace, For His Glory, an inductive study on the book of Romans. And today we are in Romans chapter two. Um, I know that the beginning of Romans is really hard. In fact, I kind of wish we could fast forward straight to the middle of chapter three and just start our Bible study there. Um, This is not my first time teaching through this. And every time I go through the book of Romans, I feel like I have to give this warning to say, please stick it out. Please stick it out. I know the beginning is hard. Um, This is why we spend so much time talking about context because context is vital, especially in the book of Romans for us as we are doing the work of interpreting and understanding what this means. So I want us to remember as we move into chapter two, that Paul is writing to bring unity to an ethnically divided church. Remember the um, Jewish believers, the Jewish people had been expelled out of Rome. And when they came um, after five years, when Emperor Claudius died and edict was repealed, they came back. Some were believers, some were Jesus following Jews. Um, But they um, came back to a Gentile church and there was a clash in the church um, over certain um, practices and what it looked like to um, be a follower of Jesus. And so Paul is writing to kind of reset the foundation, which is why Romans is such a powerful book um, and why it is so associated with the gospel, because it is a 16 chapters of presenting um, the gospel of of Jesus Christ. And so um, this beginning section that we are in right now is really where he is kind of tearing down and to to show that we are all common in our sin. Um, And um, I want to give us a spoiler alert because this is really helpful for us when we are studying Romans 1 and 2. Um, And even the first part of chapter three, in verse 21 of chapter three, there are two 
very big words that turn all of this um, on its head. And it is these two words, but now. And so because of that transitional word, and I know we're kind of on the forefront of that. And so sometimes if we don't know that's coming, we can read it these first couple chapters and kind of misunderstand what Paul is trying to say. So these first two and a half chapters of of Romans really are trying to give us a picture of what our life looks like before Jesus. This is a, um, he is not writing to say, these are the things you guys are practicing within the church that need to stop. Um, He is, it is not an indictment on their particular behavior. What he is trying to say is this is where we are without Jesus. Um, From a Gentile perspective and in chapter two, he moves toward a, uh, a Jewish perspective. Um, like I said, chapter one focused really heavily on kind of the Gentile side of the church, um, explaining how they exchange the truth of God for a lie, how they have this propensity to worship the created rather than the creator. Um, and he shows how God just gave them up to what they desired, how God allowed them to um, go after what it is that they sought in the world. And he kind of gives them this long list of sins. And towards the end of it, he kind of, um, the beginning were kind of these Gentile only sins. But as he moved through that list, they moved towards some things that were also um, Jewish. Now, remember, this is also him writing a letter. And so he's not preaching, he's not speaking in front of these people. And so as Paul is writing this letter, what he is kind of doing is anticipating some of the arguments that someone might um, might bring up as, as the letter goes on. And so um, there is this understanding that Paul has that it is quite possible that after hearing all of this, that the um, Jewish believers would be like, yep, that's right. (laughs) And so Paul is saying, whoa, 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 not so fast, not so fast. Um, You also, here's where you are without Jesus Christ. Um, And I think it's important for us to understand this particular chapter. And I'm going to kind of give you the, this overview kind of phrase that we're going to come back to um, is, is about breaking down the pride of spiritual position. Um, And in fact, we're going to see that throughout the whole book of Romans, but particularly in chapter two, um, Paul is breaking down the pride of spiritual position. Um, And there are a couple quotes that kind of talk about the state, the, um, from some commentaries that I want to give you that kind of talk about the state of um, the, the Jewish religion. So this is not necessarily saying this is what these Jews believed or that the Jews in the Roman church believed, but this is kind of on a whole. Um, William Barclay in his commentary on Romans 2 says the whole of the Jewish religion was based on the conviction that the Jews held a special position of privilege and favor in the eyes of God. Um, Matthew Henry says the Jews thought themselves a holy people entitled to their privilege by right while they were unthankful, rebellious, and unrighteous. But all those who act thus of every nation, age, and description must be reminded that the judgment of God will be according to their real character. So I want us to remember that 
um, Jesus's life, death, and resurrection was a turning point in religion. And um, if you study Jewish history, if you study church history, you understand that the Old Testament are these prophecies that kind of lead up to the um, to Jesus. All of the Old Testament tells this story of a God who longs to dwell with his people and a people who continue to turn away from his way. And so he sends Jesus. And so I want us to give them grace in this moment. And I want us to remember that they are walking out faith um, somewhere. This is written probably around 57 AD. So we're talking 25 years, less than 25 years after the death of Jesus. And so this is all very new. And so Paul is really kind of saying, like, I know there's some confusing stuff out there. I know we're all still, y'all are still trying to figure this out, but here is what it means to follow Jesus. So with that, I want us to jump in. Um, I'm going to pick up in, I'm just going to start in verse one. And again, we start right here with one of our transitional words, therefore. So because we see this, that, that means that as we are reading this, we need to keep in mind what Paul just said. So Paul just went through this whole list of sins. And remember I said, as they were kind of going through, they were not Gentile exclusive sins, that these are people these are sins that the that the nation of Israel is also guilty of. And if you look through the Old Testament, there, there is a constant turning away from God's ways and following their own. And then there's a series of punishments. There's exile, there's slavery, there's all these things because they do not keep their covenant with God. And so um, he is kind of um, interjecting this, uh, kind of anticipating the argument from the Jewish side to be like, yeah, that's right. But we're, we're from the Jewish side. So we're good as long as, because we have the law and we have these things. And so he says, therefore you have no excuse. Oh man, not every one of, um, oh man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So this is why I, I want us to keep going back to context. So each section, I'm going to come back and go remember the context, because it's very easy for us to lift this passage out and go, he's saying we can't judge one another because we are just as sinful, therefore we can't judge. But if we, we need to back up and remember what his purpose is here. So, and in this particular section, he's trying to level the playing field and help them understand without Jesus, um, whether you are Jew or Gentile, you are, um, we are, we are not saved. And, and on top of that, he wants us to also, this is why I love asking this question. What does this say about God? Because if we say, what does this say about us? We would go, don't judge. We're sinners. We can't judge people. So we just need to love people and judge. But that's not what this passage says. If we ask, what does this say about God? We see that what Paul is actually saying is we don't have a place to judge eternally 
um, because we are not righteous in and of ourselves. We are not able to judge because we are not a good, um, because we ourselves are not righteous. And so what he's doing is pointing us to God is the only righteous judge. Righteous was one of the words I had y'all look up and I kind of gave you a little bit of a preview from um, in our last session, but um, I want to go a little deeper into it. So we talked about the English definition is free from guilt or sin. So God's righteousness is the fact that he is perfect, that he is without sin, that he, um, and because of that, he is the only perfect measure. So here there is this um, Greek word, righteous judgment, um, and it comes from these two words, um, meaning right or just. Um, it's the idea of what is right in God's eyes. This is what the helps word study says, just to give us a little more clarity. Um, it describes what is in conformity to God's own being. So we need to think of God as the righteous judge being in conformity to his character because his character is righteous because he is righteous. Therefore his judgment is righteous. His judgment is free of partiality. It's free of opinion. It is what it is. It is an absolute um, truth. And the second word that it um, root word that it comes from means a separation or a decision. So what he's saying here, what Paul is saying here is that God is the only one who can make the righteous decision about who um, is righteous and who is not. Um, he's saying that you cannot judge, I cannot judge what is righteous and what is not. He is the righteous judge. He is the only one who has the power and authority to execute justice. But see what he also says? He says that God is a God who is kind and patience and forbearing. Y'all, this word forbear, whew, um, it means in English to hold back. That's the Merriam-Webster dictionary. The Greek word, it's only used twice in the New Testament. And it's the idea of God's patient endurance with us. It is the fact that he endures our sin and he holds back um, justice. He delays punishment. And the reason he does that is because it makes a way for mercy because we have a God who is long suffering. He, um, he has patience with us. He endures with us. He forbears. Y'all, our very first sin was enough for God to execute justice on us, but he doesn't. He delays. He holds back in his kindness. And he does that so that we have every opportunity to come to faith in him. I think one of the most beautiful pictures of this is in Genesis 7. Um, it's the story of Noah and the ark. And it's a story that most of us are familiar with because it's, um, you know, in my old days, it was the felt board with the animals two by two, which first of all, y'all, when you actually read Genesis 7, just as a side note, um, there were seven pairs of each clean animal. And so even though they came two by two, there were 14 of the clean animals and only two of the unclean animals, my felt boards, they let me down. But anyway, um, so there's this beautiful moment. So Noah has been building this ark. Um, estimates are at least a year. Um, Second Peter talks about how um, Noah is a herald of righteousness. Um, he, he most likely, it's not like he was hiding this in a barn and then he just like whipped it out on the last day and was like, peace out, yo. 
he probably would have been telling people all along that he, um, that the flood was coming, that judgment was coming. And then um, God commands Noah in Genesis chapter seven, verses six through 10, it talks about how he commands him to, with his family, get on the ark. Um, And then it says in um, verse uh, 10, it says, and after seven days, after seven days, the flood water came. God delayed seven more days. And in, in scripture, seven means uh, it's a number of perfection. And so it's like he gave the perfect amount of time. It's it's as if he's saying that he um, that he waited the fullness of time for anyone else. And yet no one came. And then God closed the door and the rains came. Second Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We're going to come back to this verse time and time again throughout this study. But we see here, I want to focus on his what we consider his slowness to exact justice. We we look at the world and we think we want justice now. And God is not slow to fulfill his promise as we feel slowness. In fact, God is eternal, which means he's beyond time and his timeline is not our timeline. And he is patient with us because he wants to give way for mercy. He wants to make that way. He wants to create that space. He wants to leave room for mercy, for all to come to repentance in him. Um, Psalm 90 verse four says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. A thousand years are like a watch in the night for us to him. And so his timeline is not our timeline, but we can trust because we know that he is the righteous judge. That is what Paul is saying here. He is kind and patient and he forbears with us. And because he did that for us, we can do that with others. We can be patient and kind and we can trust because he is righteous, that his word is true, that he will be faithful to do all that he says. Um, And he says, um, but eventually he does close that door. Um, Verse five here in Romans two says, because of your hardened and penitent hearts, you are storing up wrath. He's talking about the whole nation of Israel in the past. Again, remember, he's not addressing specific problems within and saying you're not actually saved what he's saying is kind of a historical overview of this is what it looks like without jesus whether you even if you are a jew um by birth you are still storing up wrath for yourself if you are not in jesus um impenitent means not repentant it's not um uh, recognizing or uh and and confessing your sin it's not recognizing that you are sinful as well. And um, if you'll remember our this kind of section here that we are going through, verse um, chapters one through four, they're kind of the introductory section of the book. And they really focus on God's righteousness versus our need for a savior. And so um, he is laying out that we all need a savior. We're common in our sin. And so that's what he's doing here. Um, verse six, um, he will render to each one according to his works, 
to those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There shall be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Okay, y'all, I get so excited when I discovered this in scripture, but verses six through 11 are what is called a chiasm. Um, it's a reverse parallelism. It is a literary device that is used in the ancient world and they're all throughout scripture. And so anytime where you see kind of this repetitive language in reverse, so you'll see it kind of build down to something and then build back out saying the same thing. That is a chiasm and it's used to kind of emphasize a specific point. So here we have this chiasm of verse six, God judges according to works. For those who do good, there is eternal life. For those who do evil, they will suffer wrath. There is wrath for those who do evil. There is glory and honor for those who do good. God judges impartially. So you see how it kind of builds in and builds out. Now, these are all throughout scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. Daniel is full of them. Exodus, the second half of Exodus is a chiasm. And typically chiastic structure builds into a main point. And so what is at the very center is the main point that the author wants you to know. Um, this one is a little bit different because the main point is actually at the at the bookends, at the at the first and the last. And so his main point is again that God is the righteous judge, that he is showing that he is the one who judges impartially. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek or Gentile. It doesn't matter there, he judges according to works. Um Psalm and he at verse six quotes, um, we find that um this idea, this kind of um the, that same language in two different Old Testament verses, Psalm 62, 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love for you will render to a man according to his work. So he's showing, um, the psalmist is showing that, that, that power belongs to God, that he is the one who has steadfast love, that he is the God above all gods and that he is the one who can judge man according to his work. And then Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? He is omniscient and powerful. He knows our hearts and he judges according to our character, not by what we are born as, not by what we do on the outside. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Um, he judges impartially. And then verse 12 kind of sums it all up. For all have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's saying it doesn't matter if you were outside the law, like we saw in chapter one. Um, if you don't obey the law, you're dead. And if you know the law and you don't obey the law, you're dead. Um, and so he's really, again, reminding them that we need a savior. So you're common in your sin. It doesn't matter what you were born as. It doesn't matter your spiritual heritage. What matters is your spiritual decision. Um, and so he's going to break this idea down a little bit further in the next verses, picking up in 13. For it is not 
um, the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. I know this language is going to get really confusing, but stick with me. Paul loves his kind of circular language, it feels like. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law, and you boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of foolishness, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then uh, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Who um, You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed against among the Gentiles because of you. So again, I want us to remember the context. We are t- Paul is talking about how um, our this is him breaking down the pride of spiritual position. And he's saying that your spiritual position or your spiritual heritage does not matter. Um, it's not what's going to save you. And so um, he is he uses this term here of the Gentiles who obey even without the law. So remember, we kind of saw that last week, um, who obey without the law, that the law is written on their hearts. Now, this phrase would be familiar to them because this is part of the new covenant, the prophecy of the new covenant given in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. He says, Jeremiah says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on this day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so it's kind of interesting here that Paul uses that phrase to talk about um, the law written on the hearts of the Gentiles. And so he's, I believe he's pointing to this idea that the new covenant is not just for the Jewish people that it's for everyone. So what we're going to see throughout this is that that God is opening the gospel. Um, Paul is saying that God has opened the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is, is available to everyone. And, um, and he's saying that, um, that it's, if you call yourself a Jew and you say all the right things and you're doing all the right things, you can know it, teach it, be born into it, but none of that excuses your sin. None of that makes you righteous. And none of that means you escape judgment for sin. We are all common in our sin. Um, and he says that they, um, that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. Um, we see this idea in Ezekiel 36, 22 through 29. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, 
Oh, house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nation and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Again, this is pointing to this new covenant, this idea that God is going to deliver the people, not for their sake, but for his own name. We see that he, um, it goes with this for his glory idea throughout the study. Um, and he says, listen, you messed up. You profaned my name among the nations um, because of the pride in your heart over your spiritual position. And so Paul is going to move here into a specific example of how this is playing out in the church. So this is a moment where we see where he is kind of addressing something that is taking place within the church. Um, so there are several practices within the Jewish religion that are up for debate about whether they should be part of, um, if you need to, to follow them to also be a Christian. And so Paul is going to address several of these throughout the book. And this is the first one. It's on circumcision. Um, so I'm going to read kind of what Paul says, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of background about circumcision and um, kind of um, bring this kind of all together and kind of wrap it up. So for circumcision, indeed, is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. This is important. This is where... Um, all of it kind of comes together, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And the circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. That's important by the spirit, not the letter, not the letter of the law, not the law itself, but by the spirit, his praise is not from man, but from God. So this is where we need to have a little bit of grace for them. We need to remember that this is a turning point and they're learning what all this means. Um, and so as Paul is kind of breaking down the pride of spiritual position here. So um, he says um, here, he's kind of addressing circumcision. So there was a question in the church about whether um, you, the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be Christian, to be followers of Jesus. Um, so circumcision, um, we find the, um, it's called the law of first mention. So if you um, want to go back and understand what something is in scripture, you go to the state, the place where you first see it in scripture. So the, that takes us to Genesis 17. And this is where God is making the covenant with Abram. 
and changing his name to Abraham. And he tells him um, that he's going to become a great nation. And so he gives them um, circumcision as a sign of the covenant. And it, it is a outward marking of an inward covenant that he is making with the nation of Israel. And so he gives this command and it ends. And this is what's, this is what I want us to remember so that we can give them just a little bit of grace. Um, an uncircumcised male, this is um, verse uh, 14 of Genesis 17. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so for them, this is a very holy, sacred thing as a symbol of their dedication to God. And so he's saying, listen, it doesn't actually matter what's on the outside. What matters is the spirit within you. What matters is the character. Remember, God shows no partiality. Um, he's saying circumcision is not what saves you. And I think there's spaces today where we do that in our own spiritual practice, where we tend to put weight on the practice of certain things, baptism, tithing, serving, communion, Lord's Supper, all of these things. And we tend to think that that outward sign proves um, or is necessary for salvation. And what Paul is saying here is it doesn't. And remember, God is the righteous judge. God is the one who sees our hearts. God is the one who knows our true character. And so we don't necessarily have to worry sometimes about some of these ethnically different practices um, as a symbol of what is in the heart. Um, and so this idea of the outward appearance um, and versus the inner obedience, um, and we talked about that in our homework this week, um, there are a couple places in scripture where I want to take you. Um, one is Matthew 23, um, 27 and 28. This is Jesus rebuking the religious leaders for their, um, their outward appearance versus their inner obedience. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but you within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The outside doesn't match the inside. And so what Paul is saying here is what counts is what's on the inside. I know we say that all the time, but um, he's saying the circumcision doesn't matter. What matters is the circumcision of the heart. Um, and that's what we see in Deuteronomy 10, 15 through 17. Yet the Lord sets his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Fall, um, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. We have a God who is above all other gods. He is mighty and great and awesome and omniscient, and he sees our hearts. Therefore, we should circumcise our hearts. That is a sign of the covenant that we have within us that shows that we have given away the peace of our flesh and that we long to be filled with the spirit, no longer stubborn, choosing our own way, but submitting to him in humility. Um, so I know that these chapters can feel depressing because we 
But in order for us to understand Jesus as our savior, we first need to understand our need for a savior. Um, I talk often about one of my favorite Bible study friends. Her name was Linda Aldridge and she passed away um, about a year ago at the recording of this. And um, I can remember her telling me this story. She had gone to an event and heard a speaker kind of give his testimony talking about how he had turned from drugs and a life of crime and he had found Jesus. And um, it was this powerful, radical, you know, kind of Paul-like transformation. And she was talking to him afterward. And um, she's like, you know, my testimony is not as strong. You know, I, I grew up in a Christian home, like I've been through some stuff, but man, your testimony is so powerful. And this man looked at my friend, Linda, and he said, you see, I actually think your testimony is more powerful because I don't know that you've ever probably had to face the weight of your own sin. And I think it's incredible that you still follow God without that burden on you. And I think for us, that's what's important. So many of us, some of us do have that radical transformation and we know that we needed a savior, but there are so many of us who grew up not knowing the weight of our own sin, not understanding our need for a savior. And so these chapters at the beginning of Romans are so important for us to remember where we are without Christ that he is the only one righteous. There is no righteousness in me, nothing that is good enough. Um, And they remind me that I need to be humble. Um, I asked a question in the homework this week about humility, and it might have seemed like it kind of came from left field, but I think this is really important when we are talking about our need for their savior and God's righteousness. Um, In first Peter chapter five, verse five, it says, likewise, You who are younger, be subject to the elder, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God poses the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I was studying this passage a few years ago, and I was so struck by the by the definition of humility um, from the Greek from the Greek word, um, because I had always heard defined humility, you know, when we try to teach it to our kids, we think, we say things like, um, it's thinking of others more than you think about yourself, or it's putting other people's needs before your own. But that's an imperfect measure. So again, we, um, we are not righteous, we are not perfect. And so this is, I don't know if I'm going to be able to describe this completely right. But even in those definitions, there's an implication of pride. So if I say, well, I'm going to think of that person more than me, or I'm going to be humble, I'm going to step back so that this person can step forward. There's an element of pride, like I could be the one to step forward. I could be that, but I'm not going to, I am going to be humble. And so to measure humility as horizontal between other people is an imperfect way to have humility um, in that there is still pride. Um, the New Testament Greek definition of humility, I'm going to read to you the helps description from biblehub.com. It says in scripture, this word, and it has, it's a very long, very hard word. I'm going to not even attempt to say it. Um, It's an inside out virtue. So again, we see a comparison of what's inside working its way out versus just an outside um, empty tomb. It's an inside out virtue produced by comparing ourselves to the Lord 
rather than to others. This brings behavior into alignment with this inner revelation to keep one from becoming self-exalting, self-exalting, self-determining, and self-inflated. For the believer, humility means living in complete dependence on the Lord, no reliance on self. Humility is not comparing yourself to other people. It's comparing yourself to God. This is why God-centered Bible study and asking um, questions like, what does this say about God here in scripture is so important because when we catch a glimpse of who God is, it humbles us because we realize who we are not. (laughs) Um, As much as I love to go to scripture and I love to read all the passages that tell me how wonderful I am, it's important for me to daily come to him humbly and recognize that all I have is because of him. All that I am is because of him, that there is no good in me, that um, there is, I am nothing without him and that I need to be completely dependent on the Lord, not dependent on myself. Maturity in our faith is backwards from the world. The world, we learn that as you grow more mature, you grow more independent. That is, as I raise my kids, I'm trying to teach them how to do things independently. Um, Brushing their own teeth, putting on their own shoes, um, eventually things like cooking and learning how to drive and how to balance a checkbook and uh, you don't have to balance checkbook anymore Um, how to keep track of a budget how to make decisions that are wise I am trying to help them learn how to do all those things on their own independently to help set them up for success as they mature and go out into the world But the opposite is true in scripture, in scripture, in our walk, in our faith, um, the more mature we become, the more realize, the more we realize we need to be dependent, not independent. So as you walk with Christ, you're not going to wake up one day and be like, I got it now, God, like, sweet. Thanks so much. You got me this point. I'm good now. I'll see you later. I'll come back when I realize I need some more of you. No, the more I walk with God, the more I wake up every single day on my knees going, Lord, if you don't show up today, I can't do this. I am not enough unless you come. I love that song, Available. It just, I I literally, I have nothing in me, in my flesh that can do anything, that can face anything. This is why that, that God doesn't give you more than you can handle is such a dangerous lie. God gives me more than I can handle every single day. And the reason is because I need God. And If I could handle my life, I wouldn't need him. I wouldn't need to be dependent on him. So he equips me with himself. And in that dependence, um, I have a book by R. Kent Hughes. It's actually a preacher's commentary on the book of Romans. It's called Romans, the Righteousness of God. And um, he reminds us of this. Whenever a follower of Christ feels superior, he should beware. For such an attitude is not a sign of God's grace. To come into a position of spiritual privilege only to succumb to self-righteous arrogance indicates that one's soul is in great danger. Our familiarity with holy things must never give way to spiritual presumption. We need to safeguard ourselves against the pride of spiritual position. We, yes, need to hold the tension between I am chosen and loved and holy and a daughter of the king and fearfully and wonderfully made and all those things. But I also need to hold that with the tension that I am a sinner 
and I need his grace. I am not capable of saving myself. I am not capable of anything good without him. He is the only one righteous. He is so patient, so kind, so long suffering with us. Even in our pride, when we think we are better than we are, he is there with us, patiently forbearing, walking with us, enduring with us. He held back judgment from me. He was long suffering with my sin. He has been so patient with my own stubbornness, steadfastness, and my own pride. And when I recognize and know that my dependence is on him, it helps me extend that grace to others. Would you pray with me? Father, you are the righteous judge. You are the one who is omniscient, who sees us, who knows our hearts and our character and our inside. And yet, Lord, you still love us. You still came for us and you made a way for mercy and you made a way for grace. Lord, thank you that you didn't see us in that condition and say, good luck, have fun with that. I'll see you when you can clean yourself up. But Lord, that you came. But now we have Jesus. Lord, I just pray that as we move into Romans 3, we would see the hope that we have because of you. Lord, that we would not allow ourselves to only sit in the in the um in the darkness of who we are without you, but God, that we would move toward that um, holding who we are in you as well. Lord, that we would hold both each day, that we would come humbly to you, um, that we would see who you are, Lord, and then because of that, be able to extend um, who you are to the world by your grace for your glory. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. visited a church recently that has a time of corporate confession. There's a liturgical reading where together as the body of Christ, you admit that you fall short and you praise God for who he is and claim his character. But then after that, there's a time of silent confession, a place to pray and ask forgiveness and confess specific sin. And I know that can sound terrifying. But what's most powerful to me is what happens next, because this time of confession is followed immediately with a time of communion. There's something incredibly powerful about admitting your sin and then immediately coming to the Lord's table. Y'all, what a beautiful picture of how God made a way for mercy and grace, that despite my sin and my shortcomings and the way that I continually choose my way over His way, He still made the way through the body and blood of Jesus Christ for me to have communion with our righteous, holy, great, awesome God. Y'all, I'm so thankful for Jesus. And I am so thankful that we are moving in to chapter three, where we will finally come to those two most powerful words. But now I'll see you next week.